I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Janine Chastain. We're collaborating on curated conversations to explore how the industry of architecture is changing. Together, we'll find ways to create new solutions to current challenges while elevating the value of architects. Welcome to Practice Disrupted. Hello, listeners. Hello, Janine. Hi, Evelyn. Hi, Disruptors. So in this episode, we are bringing in an outside expert to give us their views on upcoming technologies, specifically artificial intelligence or AI. Now, for listeners who tune in regularly, you know that Janine and I have a really soft place in our hearts for driving better business operations, practice management, and leadership development in firms. So that's kind of going to be our focus here. So today we're going to be talking about AI and how it applies to architecture. And usually when I hear AI come up, it's sometimes related to project delivery and outputs, like design tools such as MidJourney. But what we're talking about today is more on organizational operations and how to make improvements across the entire business. Yes, we are diving in on the operations side and literally a tool that you can download and play with while this podcast is going on, preferably after you finish the episode. But I'm really excited to just jump in and talk about this tool that can help you with everything from emails to proposals to literally having some type of chat mechanism on your website. So I'm excited to get this started. Let's welcome Jason Cooperberg to Practice Disrupted. Hi, Jason. Hey, thanks so much for having me, guys. We're so glad to have you. And we want to start off by just asking you to introduce yourself and tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Jason. I'm the co-founder of Other Side AI. We're an applied AI company building writing and communication tools using some of the most powerful artificial intelligence and language technology that's available. We started the company about two and a half years ago. We've been through a few iterations and our biggest product and platform to date is called Hyperite, which we'll get into a bit deeper later on in the conversation, I'm sure. But think of Hyperite as an AI writing assistant that anyone can benefit from. It can follow you wherever you go, wherever you're writing across the web with our Chrome extension. You can use it to generate copy and content very quickly, get ideas on our web app. There are a lot of ways to interact with it. And our goal overall is to take this really powerful technology and build tools and experiences that the everyday user can get value from. Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting to me that you said you have, like, your company has been going for like two, two and a half years. But when did you first find your way to AI? And I feel like this is one of those things that like have been bubbling up over time and just finally just took off. Yeah, definitely. It was definitely a bit of a, a bit of a journey for me. I studied biotech in undergrad. So it was this combination of the sciences, engineering, and business. And I loved kind of being able to combine these different aspects, kind of like the problem-solving experimentation that I was doing in my research. I was doing molecular biology research, then kind of taking like the engineering, whether that was hardware or and eventually software, and applying it to that. And then kind of business and, and entrepreneurship and, and problem-solving and building things that real users can derive value from. So it was kind of this this iteration from hard science research into software, engineering, and eventually towards AI. 
after I graduated from my undergrad, I was at Stanford for two years where I did an innovation fellowship. I did a lot of focus on kind of user-focused design, user experience, both in kind of the real world and, and with software and with, with technology. And soon after I ended my time at Stanford, I linked up with my co-founder, Matt. Matt had been experimenting with some of these technologies before. If, if folks are familiar with ChatGPT, there's a large language model called GPT-3, which is behind ChatGPT. Its precursor was GPT-2, which wasn't very impressive at the time compared to what we have today. But my co-founder, Matt, was playing around with it. And he was like, wow, I can use this AI to, I can put in a few keywords and generate sentences or paragraphs. So he started playing around with it, thinking, how could we use this to really augment our work? Uh, so he started experimenting with it for emails and things like that. A few months later, GPT-3 was coming out, and this was a huge step change. We went from being able to kind of generate broken pieces of copy to entire paragraphs, emails, and things like that quite easily. But what we found was that you had to be an engineer or you had to kind of understand how to work with the model to get it to do what you wanted. So our whole thesis when we started the company, which was around then when GPT-3 came out, was how can we take this really powerful technology, put an interface around it so that the everyday user can benefit from it? You don't have to be technical. You don't have to understand engineering. So it was kind of this progression for me, right, where I started in the sciences, engineering, solving problems, building things that everyone can, can derive value from. And I became really excited in where's the future of technology going? How can I find the things that I think are going to be really valuable in the future and start building with them and, and bringing them to people. And that's kind of how we ended up where we are today. So I'm going to go off script. I think chat GPD has like come to the forefront, like really recently. And, you know, Janine and I can look at potentially dropping some of those articles down in the show notes, if you don't know what we're talking about. But what is chat GPD? And was this an open source thing? Is it an open source thing that engineers can play with and manipulate? We always talk in architecture about how we don't share things. So in a way that so many different people have access to this as a tool, even that is kind of really interesting to me. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's a lot of research out there in the in the AI and ML space. GPT-3, ChatGPT, anything with GPT in it most likely comes from OpenAI, which is kind of the most prominent research lab out there. And they've trained these models that essentially have taken in all the writing and content on the internet, every single book that was ever written, and they trained these models on them. The way that these models work is they predict the word that's most likely to come next based on the context of what's already on the page. So you can say, we have half of a sentence, what is the most likely token or word that's gonna come next? Or based on a question, what's the most likely word? And you can do that word by word until you have constructed an entire response. So OpenAI built the largest and most powerful models that are available, and they've made them available via their API. So we partner with them, we pay for access to their API. ChatG GPT is a product of theirs that was free, now has a paid version as well that uses kind of similar APIs, similar technologies. But then we, in our, in our products, we use a variety of models. So we use OpenAI models. We also work with a partner, Cohere. They're based out of Toronto, also building large language models like OpenAI. We have some of our own smaller models in-house, but it's becoming a lot easier to build these models, make use of them. Some of them are becoming open source. So it, it's really exciting. And I think the the entire community, the AI community is, is really all about how can we move this stuff forward really quickly and get it to the most people possible. 
So for those of us who don't know what an API is, can you explain that a little bit to us? Yeah, totally. So an API is a way that you can get access to information. So when we're coding, we can make a request to this API and we can say, for example, in this case, we can say, here's the half of the sentence that I have next. I'll send that up to OpenAI and then they'll send back the response on how to complete that sentence. So an API is essentially, can I send some information to another company, to something that my company is building and then get a response back? And then I can use that response and give it to the user. I don't know, Janine, I'm just thinking about like, there are so many different things that architects could do if they made some of their building models, like an accessible through an API sold on a subscription. But anyways, moving on. <laughs> so you, you kind of alluded to email and this product of yours has been on the market for a little bit. So why don't you tell us specifically about Hyperwrite is and where are you seeing some of the biggest use cases right now? Yeah, absolutely. So you can think of Hyperite as your personal writing assistant. My co-founder, Matt, and I, we found that we were doing a lot of co-writing. We'd be on Zoom together and we'd have a document up and he'd be typing and then I'd just kind of say something and he'd type what I said to, to finish the sentence. So we were like, what if we can kind of recreate this co-writing experience? So there are a few different ways that folks interact with and use Hyperite. One of the most popular and easiest ways to get started is with our templates. So think of templates as forms that take in a bit of information and then use these models to return longer information. So I'll give you a really good example, an introduction to a blog post. Let's say we're writing an introduction to a blog post about AI writing tools. I can give a little bit of information about the blog that I'm writing, just kind of saying the title is how architects can use AI writing tools, the audience is in there, and then I press submit, auto write on Hyperwrite, and Hyperwrite will return a few different paragraphs based on that input for me to use. They're all original, they can spark ideas, you can use them directly. So these templates can be used for uh, blog content, getting ideas, lists, pretty much any type of written information you can think of. We have templates for it, or you can create your own templates. So templates are a really easy way to get started and to introduce yourselves to kind of the hyper-right world. So I'm thinking back to my days in marketing where you're constantly writing narrative to talk about the architecture or to talk about the firm itself. And I can imagine, I know a lot of architects struggle with trying to write about their buildings from a marketing standpoint. They know how to do it from a technical standpoint, but not always comfortable with making the jump into selling the project in a marketing way. So I think if you're one of those people that wouldn't want to start with a blank page in terms of writing, you want to maybe edit something or mark it up, this, is, this sounds like a great way to get started. Or even for the marketing person who's maybe like a little bit burnt out writing the same thing over and over again, perhaps this is a great way to get a fresh perspective. Absolutely. Marketers are kind of one of our biggest user personas, kind of that, that blank page, right? Writer's block in the middle of a, of a paragraph, in the middle of a sentence, just staring that, at that blank page, not sure how to get started. Anything, we found that anything that you can get to help you get started, get ideas, can really help you overcome that mental block and get through your work a lot more efficiently. So, so we're definitely in the business of, of beating writer's block, if you will. Yeah, so I also see 
when I'm typing out a lot of responses to individuals, if I'm trying to do an outreach for sponsorship for the podcast, for instance, we also find ourselves doing a lot of repeat emails. So is there something that AI can, or even HyperWrite or AI generally can do to help make that process a lot easier and personalize it? Definitely. So I think we kind of started with the templates talking about the creativity aspect that I don't know where to go. And then Evelyn, you're kind of alluding to this. I have repetitive tasks that I want to just get done faster, right? Why can't I write the same thing over and over again? Something should be able to predict what I'm going to say next or suggest that for me when I need it. So that is a great use case for our Chrome extension. And what's really cool about the Chrome extension is it will learn from your writing, learn from how you write emails, how you write documents, the information in those, and then be able to in real time with that gray kind of, if you're familiar with the gray autocomplete predictions, we bring that to essentially every single website. And those predictions are informed by your past writing. So Hyperite will recognize when you're writing one of those common emails and try to complete the sentence based on what you've said before. We have that. We also have the templates on the Chrome extension. The Chrome extension is a really great way to start working with AI because it brings it right where you're already working, right? One of the things that I learned is people are really comfortable in their workflows. It's hard to start using new tools, but as I've learned from like other Chrome extensions, like Grammarly is a great example, when you can bring kind of the benefit and the value that you want to provide directly to where the user is working, it's a lot easier to get started. Okay, I'm guilty. Grammarly, I've been using it for... I think four years and I would never not pay for it. It is like one of the tools that I rely on the most because it's even if I am not thinking clearly, I can trust it to catch my mistakes in a quick and easy way to edit. And it's way better than spell check, I got to say. So I'm wondering, like, when you're talking about the Chrome extension or any of these kind of integrations, is it something that it learns from that point forward, or does it assess past writing to take it into consideration on how to support you best? So I'll give you the right now answer and then the where we're working towards and where we'll be going answer. Right now, Hyperite starts learning once you download the extension. It'll learn from emails that you send and receive. It'll learn from Google documents that you're writing and it'll learn from Notion documents. We're adding additional websites and then eventually we're going to add integrations where you can just say, connect my Gmail or connect my Google Drive and it'll be able to learn from past documents as well variety of reasons that we're going about it in this way. But right now it is kind of specifically limited to a few websites, common websites where people are writing and communicating and from the point at which you download the extension. But it's definitely available into integrations with your email server and provider. Yep. So it's on Gmail and Outlook, the personalization aspect, and then the predictive aspect can be added. Uh, is available on any email provider or any website. One of the other really cool features that I'm excited about that I use basically every single day is our smart templates. So we have these templates that I was mentioning before, but smart templates are essentially take these templates where you can go from a few words to an entire piece of copy or an entire email and bring them to directly where you're working. So now when you're responding to an email in Gmail, you hit or Outlook, you hit reply, 
you'll see a smart template suggestion from Hyperate saying, hey, like I can write this entire email for you. So you can click on that suggestion, write a couple words based on what you're saying, and Hyperite will use your summary plus the email that you're responding to, as well as the past emails that you've sent, as we were talking about before, to generate the entire email or suggestions for you. And again, sometimes it's going to be perfect and you can send it right away, or sometimes it's just enough to kind of get you past that blank page to, to get you started, give you some inspiration. So I feel like sometimes architects are very skeptical crew. And you talk about OpenAI and all of the data that's been fed into there. But I imagine they're more likely to be scanning business books than they are architecture books. So what do you have to say to kind of architects that are like, I don't know if the data is going to like exist that I can kind of get the output that I need for my marketing proposals or my case studies or... Well, I have another response to this, uh, own, my own response to this, but like, yeah. it's not going to be in a, the language that we're used to talking in. What do you say to that? My initial response is try it out and see what it can do. I think it's easy to overlook these technologies, but I've heard from doctors, lawyers, architects about how they were kind of had that same expectation. They were like, there's no way I can do my job. I went to school and have studied this for for years and years, right? And they're very impressed. And go in with the expectation that it's not going to be perfect, but it can give you some ideas and help you where you need help. I think this also kind of leads into a really interesting discussion, which is we're going to see a lot of specialized AI tools coming out over the next few years, right? I'm already familiar with a few in the law space, the legal space, uh, and I think that's kind of a a, a nice comparison, right? Because there's so much specific jargon and language and, and voice that's necessary for these professions, right? So maybe the general tools can help you a little bit, help you in your day-to-day writing, but they don't have as deep of an understanding of the kind of architecture topics that you are writing about and uh, talking about most frequently. But I bet, if not already, within the next year or two, someone's going to come out, take these really powerful general models, add specific AI and examples and data sets related to architecture that are just going to make them a world of a difference. So I think by learning and experimenting with the tools today, even if they're not perfect, you can kind of be ready to have a leg up on everyone else once those even more specific tools are available. Evelyn, I want to hear your response to your own question. Well, kind of my response to my own question is I feel like architects are very verbose in unnecessary way sometimes when explaining their projects. So I would almost say that the output from the AI is the first instinct of what you're getting back is probably language more common to the clients that we're actually seeking to attract than to architects talking to architects. So that's kind of my view on that. I don't know, Janine, if that was where you were expecting I was going. One of the templates or one of the things in Hyperwrite is literally like, explain it like I'm five. Like take a complicated process, right? And ask the AI to explain it like I'm five. And I feel like it will uncomplicate some of the ways that architects go about describing what we do in a way that the general public can see greater value in what we bring to the table. I mean, I guess 
from my perspective, I've been trying to help architects write for over 10 years. So I've experienced every type of writer that exists in the architecture profession, which is like some we have brilliant writers. They could like run circles about around us writing beautiful narratives about their projects. And then some they can't even articulate beyond the most technical elements of their project what me as a person who is a client who may not have any understanding of architecture should be taking out of their project or should be understanding about what they've designed. And so I've like worked with them and I see all versions, but I always, you know, I guess the thing in response to what you just said, Evelyn, yes, I think there is a learning curve in our industry about how to write narratives that are beyond archi speak. And in order as a as someone who has done marketing with architects and am trying to help them sell their services to clients who may not be architects, you have to get beyond that archi speak. And so, yes, building and expanding your vocabulary, learning to write complex sentences that are not minimalist. I just think there's so much more to do. And if a tool can help you see your blind spots and get out of your normal habits, then I think that that's a good resource for learning. Absolutely. One of our other most popular features is our rewrite feature, where on the Chrome extension, you can just highlight a sentence and say, make it simpler or expand it or shorten it. And that's really popular because it can take kind of some of this complex language that we're talking about that folks who are maybe adjacent or outside of the industry might have a bit, bit of trouble with and maybe make it a little easier for them to to digest. Yeah. And I'm guilty. I like usually my sentences are they need to be edited down, but I've gotten a lot better thanks to tools like Grammarly. I guess I wanted, I remembered what I wanted to ask you all. And before we got started recording, we were kind of joking that, you know, both of you are advocates for this kind of adoption of technology. And I'm kind of new to the space. This is every time Evelyn introduces a new tool to me, I'm learning. I just wanted to hear from your perspectives. What's the value add? Like, where do you see, like, by not taking the time to, do this task or to have these templates, where do you get the most return? Wow. I would just want to start by saying, I think we're all learning. <laughs> You're not learning, especially the early adopters. I think we are, we're there to kind of break the system and understand current limitations and, and how to push it. I think for me, it's not necessarily a value add, but like, what is the opportunity cost for, for not trying I guess, is a different way of looking at it. You won't see the value add until you try and you can continue and do things tomorrow like you do them today. But it's been really interesting because I've been seeing this quote floating around a lot, like AI is not going to take over your job, but someone who uses AI will. So I think, you know, it's, it's just... If you're in a field where you need to kind of understand all of the various different influences that are coming and affecting the field and affecting the various different roles within that field. And in architecture, that that's a lot, a lot of the time. It's, it's many different things. But if you don't have either someone you can turn to to say, like, hey, look, check this out, or if you aren't willing to dive in yourself, I, I just feel like there's an opportunity cost and we're we're going to get ultimately get left behind. Yeah, 
Definitely agree. I think I, I can definitely relate to, and I'm an advocate for the human and AI collaboration, right? I talk about HyperWrite as a writing assistant, a writing partner, and I think that's really important. I also want to say that I don't think anyone should go into this or start using an AI tool and expect that within the first minute or two, it's going to save them hours and be the magic bullet that helps them get twice as much work done. There is kind of a learning curve. I mentioned earlier, and I, I say this all the time, kind of embrace the exploration, embrace the trying new things, play with it, see what it can do. The AI is really good at creative things. So just kind of take it in any direction. And you'll learn a lot about how these systems work through that kind of playful exploration that you can then bring back around to the more productive or works-based tasks that you, that you need. And we're going to see that this is becoming a lot more prevalent in our work in every single industry. So I think it's the early adopters today who take that time to learn and explore who will have a leg up on everyone else in the future as this becomes more and more mainstream. I know, Evelyn, I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel like every time I go on LinkedIn, it's all about ChatGPT or it's all about AI. And I think that is true, but that's still just a very small portion of the world of our industries, right? There are so many, so many people who have never heard of any of this before. Likely a lot of people who are listening. And I think just by being curious and starting to learn and starting to explore, you'll have you'll have a really great opportunity ahead as this becomes more and more prevalent. And the interesting thing is, I think, you know, all the big companies are already finding ways to sneak this in, right? Like Gmail has their version of autocomplete, which even shows up on Android and in Google Docs. Microsoft, I don't know if they just made or they were looking to acquire a huge AI company to integrate it into their Microsoft suite. So whether or not you have a personal preference towards using it or not, I feel like all of the tools that we already use will be embracing AI to some extent. Anyways, you don't have a choice. Definitely. Yeah, you alluded to, to Microsoft. Microsoft has invested billions of dollars into OpenAI. They're huge partners, and they're going to be integrating a lot of this stuff over the coming years. We saw Notion kind of launch their AI features. I think one of the one of the kind of larger, more prevalent writing products to really lean into this. We're going to see a lot more products do this. We're going to see existing products and platforms adding AI features, and then we're going to see a lot more AI first and AI native products and tools like Hybrid, for example, where, where we started with the AI and then built the experience around that. And the experience and the interface should not be overlooked, right? Like I said, it's not a magic bullet that's going to solve everything. It's really important to build interfaces and something we think about all the time, build interfaces and experiences that the everyday user can just start learning and exploring and start using it in their work. So you mentioned earlier in the episode about a couple of different instances of how you might use the tool. Are there other workflows that you have found helpful even in your own business? Yeah, we joke that we've been we've kind of kept our headcount low because we use AI to augment so many functions. 
I think there are some common examples like writing our emails. We use a, a lot of tools in writing code that make us a lot more productive, find issues faster, find bugs faster. One really cool example is that we haven't hired any external folks to help with support, even though we have hundreds of thousands of users on the platform. We haven't hired anyone to do support specifically because we've built AI systems that allow us to respond to our support tickets in like a really personal manner very quickly. And our engineers and myself and a few others are able to do that using kind of tools that we've built internally. I mentioned my co-founder, Matt, everything that he does, whether it's writing a pitch deck, writing an investor update is augmented and uses AI. Yeah, it's interesting because I did this poll on LinkedIn not too long ago about what are architects looking into next? And I, and I separated out AI and automation, but I really actually see a nice marriage that is happening between the two that really enables people to free up their space and time. So you mentioned kind of the port mechanisms. Is there any other unique partnerships or unique workflows between automation and AI that you've been seeing that can help kind of get rid of the medial work that people don't like to do? This is something that we're that we're actively working on, right? I talked about our templates. We have these smart templates. We have custom templates, and and we're building in these workflows like this. No specific tools come to mind. I think something like Zapier is really interesting as an example. If folks are familiar, where you can kind of build some of your own workflows. They have AI and GPT three integrations. There's a really a really great opportunity here, certainly. I, I guess I'm curious, what are some of those like repetitive common tasks that architects are doing? Maybe we can like ideate on some potential solutions for those. Well, one and I don't know, let's I'm gonna back it out of architecture, but I'll talk about something else that I saw that seemed really interesting to me as a small business owner, which was woman to help me with getting my dress altered for an event. And she's spending all of her time in the production state, which is very similar to architects. They're working on projects, they're working on drawings. She didn't have as much time to sit there and write a one-off email to everybody on every email that she was getting and in a query. So she had developed email templates that kind of helped filter the customer experience. Now this, I think, you know, works to a certain extent, but like when you first get that initial outreach, having something automated that helps to receive and respond so that person's not waiting like multiple days gives them the expectation of when you'll get back to them. You know, she even had an automated email that went out once we set up a follow-up appointment. So like these are things that I think save a lot of time. Definitely. That's that's really interesting. I think a lot of those solutions that you're talking about here in the past have been very rules based, right? Like there if it's this type of person reaching out or if like these keywords are in their initial message, I can kind of just bucket them and send this response, this like macro, this this generalized response, put their name in and put maybe kind of using rules, like a couple other details in. This allows us to take that to the next level where instead of just kind of plugging in a few variables, we can generate the entire thing. We can add information about that person, about that individual to kind of augment it and construct a message that's that's even more personalized to them. So it's not as rules-based. So I think that's a really great way to think about it is what do we do today that we've kind of automated a little that's like very rules-based and then how can we expand on it to make it even more powerful? 
Yeah. One thing that I was thinking it would be an interesting application, and I saw I was in some AI workflow group, you know, I think it was on Facebook, but they essentially are because they work in a very transparent way with their team, they essentially send all of their email using AI, they filter all their emails to specific Slack channels because they just happen to use Slack. And then AI also reads those emails and based on the context in them, they at mention certain people in those Slack channels. So it shows up as like a little alert saying like, you need to pay attention to this part of the email. And I'm just thinking about the all the emails that I get from the school district that I'm like so flooded with that at one point I just like stopped reading emails until my daughter came back from school and she's like, mom, we are supposed to wear pajamas today. And I was like, oh, I must have missed that email that said it was a pajama day at school. She was fine with it, but I'm just like, God, there's got to be a way to kind of filter out the meaningful stuff to me in like all of these emails that are coming or call out, you know, when people need to take certain action in those emails too. Yeah, we've talked about like the generative kind of the transformative text aspects of this before, but but you're kind of alluding to some of the other potential here, which is classification. There are these things called embeddings. There's so, so much here that when sometimes when folks ask me, like, what the best way to use it? It's just such a broad question. I'm like, where do you want to get started? And that's why I love saying, like, what are the problems you have? Like, what do you spend the most time on or the tasks that you don't like or the repetitive tasks? And then let's like dive into one of those and let's kind of dissect it and see where we can add things in rather than just like starting at the top and saying, let's AIify everything. Right. One of the ones I'm hearing a lot from architects is information overload, and they get so many emails and they're trying to track really critical, important technical information. So I'm wondering, how does AI help with information overload? Yeah, there are a few different ways. So kind of the example you just said was related to what Evelyn was talking about before. What about instead of kind of like, again, rules-based classification systems, right, where if it's from a certain email address or includes a certain keyword, we kind of start it or mark it as important. What if we're evaluating the entire email and based on if you've responded to it, it can decide whether you're likely to respond to that email, if you want to read it right away, if you want to save it to read later, if you're never going to get to it at all, tag them, move them into different folders. Then when you go into your email inbox, you're just seeing the most important emails. Something we've been prototyping is along these lines, kind of what is a personal assistant look like for this, where it's kind of letting you know these are the most important emails, then it's going in and pre-drafting responses to those. So we built prototypes for this. What does it look like to open your inbox in the morning and see draft responses of to all your emails already? That would be amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's a hard problem to solve, but it's like something we're prototyping. And it's a really interesting thing. And everyone kind of has that response that, that it's something that they'd be interested in. So let's say I signed up, which I'm going to do because Evelyn's been using this for a while. I need to test it out and try it out for my applications. Walk me through the process of getting started. Like, what do I need to do and what do I need to input to get this functional? Totally. So super simple to get started. 
create an account, connect your Gmail, whatever your, your preference for creating an account is. We'll ask a few questions about who you are, right, to learn about some of the maybe more common writing tasks or functions that you're doing. And from there, you'll be presented with the Hyperite dashboard, which allows you to use the templates, like I mentioned, view our AI document editor, like I mentioned. Templates, I think, are the best way to get started. Just experience that going from a few words or a little bit of text to an entire piece of content. I think that's a that's a really easy way to see the power of this and then get your mind going on what are the specific tasks that I do that I can apply this to. And then the other thing I would recommend, two more recommendations actually. One of them is HyperChat, which is like our chatbot, which you can kind of just interact with like a normal person and ask for information. So with help with research, for drafting things, anything that you can think of. It's like having a personal assistant right there and you can kind of see what it's capable of. And then the Chrome extension is something that definitely is going to provide a lot of value when you're writing emails, when you're writing in Google Docs. It'll make those suggestions as you're typing. It'll learn from you. You don't have to go out of your way or change your workflow, assuming you're on a site that we uh, have good support for. And it'll just provide those suggestions right as you're writing. And then you'll start discovering other ways that it can help you. I will sit down with people all the time and just kind of run through some ideas with them. Folks are posting TikToks and YouTube videos about HyperEye, but I know that we can do a better job of uh, getting kind of content tutorials and things out there. Sometimes it's just like we have so much that we offer. I'm like, do we need to narrow it down even further? Because it can be a little intimidating and overwhelming to get started. But if you go into it with like a learning mindset, just like an exploratory, I'm going to see what's out there. I think that's the best way to get started. So there are a lot of different AI options out there from free to freemium to paid, et cetera. So how does HyperWrite differentiate itself from all of those other options? Yeah, totally. Especially within like the last two months, we've seen a lot, lot more come out. I think one of the first things I'll say is just we've been around for a couple of years and not many can say that. So we've spent a lot of time just like perfecting the way that we do things, building a lot of our systems. One of the things that we do really differently from folks is specifically our focus on the Chrome extension. I'll be honest, the templates that we have are really beneficial. People love them, but they're pretty easy for other companies to replicate. The Chrome extension is a lot harder to build, both technically, right? It's something that we spent a lot of time building. And then also kind of the added value there with the personalization, the learning from you that most products don't offer, folks love, right? We've we've seen a really clear difference in folks who convert to paying users who retain and use the product more frequently if they are using this personalization feature. So there are a lot of other aspects relating to the Chrome extension, but I think the Chrome extension is definitely our biggest differentiator right now. In regards to like kind of like the free, freemium, paid, I think everyone has their own opinions on this. This is like a very big kind of business question, right? It's like, do you offer more for free to get more users on it and get it into their habits and then have them pay? Do you offer less for free and then pay up front because your investors want you to show that people will pay for what you have to offer and you're going after revenue? So it's not, you don't want to decide kind of which tool is best for you based on if it's free or if it's paid, but it's more like, what are your needs? Because that usually goes back to like a bigger business decision. We offer like a pretty nice freemium option where you can get a certain number of template use each month. You can use these type ads, these gray predictive text suggestions every day, kind of limited on the free plan. And then if you're hitting those limits and you want to keep going, you can kind of upgrade that to provide this. 
there are costs. People are like, oh, it's just like searching the internet and it should be free. So there, there are a lot of costs that go into it. And it's, it's something that we definitely work on explaining to our users. And that's where it comes from. I'm always curious about what companies do with my data. And so I was wondering, what are the rules around data with what you're offering? Yeah, that's a really, really important question. And I think it's something that folks have, have always been worried and wondering and curious about, and, and rightfully so. I think especially with this AI, right, where these models, not even like that we're working on necessarily, but that we work with or that bigger companies are working on, they are using information that's out there. Who does that belong to? Who do the derivative works belong to? I think this is like a bigger question that we're not going to get an exact answer on. But I will say that it's one of the things that we think about all the time. So I mentioned earlier that the personalization feature is only currently available on our Chrome extension. And that's actually for a very intentional reason. It's not because we can't bring it to other features. It's because we store all of the personal data, like your emails, on your local device. So it's on on your computer. And then as we're using them to generate suggestions, we will send some of them up to our servers, but we're, we don't have like all of your emails, all of your information stored in the cloud. It's stored on your computer and then we're sending it like up as needed, like snippets, a piece of information to add as context up to our servers and up through the, the APIs like we were talking about before that we use. Yeah, so TLDR, it's really, really important. I'm not going to pretend to have all the answers, but it's something that we think about all the time. And I think it'll be interesting to see where that goes. No, I think that was the reason why I was going to actually ask about data because it's becoming more of a concern, but there are also more laws in place these days that I feel like these organizations have to work around in terms of data privacy too. Is there anything else, Jason, that you want us to kind of touch upon? I feel like we've covered the broad strokes. I wanted to make sure we didn't miss anything. I think we covered most of it. I think at the end of the day, I'm just really excited about the potential that AI has. And I'm excited that people are getting curious about it and starting to use it. And even if it's not the products that I'm working on, I hope that everyone who's listening will at least try out one or two AI products or at least be more open to it the next time they come across it. Yeah. And I think, you know, the biggest lesson for me that I hope individuals take away from this conversation is that. All of this new technology that is coming on doesn't just affect the project itself. Like there's so many other aspects of the business that AI can make an impact on. I would even say we've got to figure out a way to do like timesheets and and time tracking better. Like the opportunity is, is there to make your work life more simple, more pleasant and more productive, which is again, like a salute to, to Slack. But Anyways, there's an opportunity for all of this technology to make our work lives more simple, more pleasant and productive. And I think it's it's not, again, you know, to Janine, to your earlier question, it's not like the value add, it's the opportunity costs of not engaging. I think one of the last things I want to say is we're still really early. We're still really early and everyone who's kind of getting into it now and experimenting is going to be ahead of everyone else. And this is going to change a lot in our world. And I think it's really important to both think about the benefits that that will bring us as well as the implications of it. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how the next few years go. I think it's going to be akin to an industrial revolution, but in the way that we work and the way that we live our lives. Hi, Disruptors. 
If you like the content from today's show, you can find all of our past episodes over on practiceofarchitecture.com slash podcast. Be a part of the conversation by joining us, our speakers, and others in the community at practiceofarchitecture.com slash community. Our social media handle is practice of arc. That's practice of A-R-C-H. We'd love to hear from you. So feel free to drop us a DM and say hello. Thank you for joining us on Practice Disrupted, a podcast by the Practice of Architecture. Tune in next week for a new conversation on change in the profession.